Let us turn now to the book of Revelation and the sixth chapter. The book of Revelation and the chapter six. And we arrive this evening in our week by week expository ministry through God's word in the verse nine of Revelation chapter six. Please turn with me there in your Bibles. And we take it in through the eyes as well as the ears here tonight. Revelation chapter 6, commencing our reading at the verse 9. This is the word of God. Come, let us hear God's holy word together. The Lord give us ears to hear and hearts to receive his word this night. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord be pleased to bless the public reading of his word. Enable in the ministry and the reception of his word by his spirit here this night. May the Lord go before us now in prayer. May we pray in the spirit with God's help. May he lay upon our hearts the things that we ought to pray. Father, as we come before, dear friends, I'd ask you to please turn your prayerful attention there in the book of the Revelation in the chapter 6. We arrive this evening in these verses that I read in your hearing, verse 9 to the verse 17 of the book of the Revelation. And uh, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, as we read in the opening verse of the book of the Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants the things which will shortly come to pass, the things that will take place in this world. From the time there, John is on the island of Patmos, the time now somewhere between 95 and 98 AD, and John is suffering for his faith and his testimony in the Lord Jesus Christ. As many Christians were in that first century, many were thrown to the lions, many were crucified indeed on the cross, not just the Lord Jesus and the two next to him, but many Christians were martyred for the sake of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and for owning him as God and for not bowing down to Caesar. And of course, this happened successively down through the centuries and has even happened in our land, in our country. We know what has happened here in England under Mary Tudor. We know how many suffered and were burnt at the stake for the sake of Jesus Christ. Many Catholics put Protestants to death on the cross. Today, Muslims will put Christians to death, even in those countries like Iran and Iraq and Sudan, as we'll think tonight, Nigeria, 
many Christians, and it is predicted in Holy Scripture that Christians will suffer for the sake of Christ. But blessed be God, this world is not our end. Heaven is our home. And it is told of the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not, in Matthew chapter 5, that his people will suffer. And blessed are they if they suffer for his name's sake. We don't look for trouble in this world. The trouble will come because, as the Lord Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you also. And they will, we know this, so often the world will call a Christian a goody two-shoes, won't they? And they will criticize Christians, so they may not be put to death, but they will be persecuted in the workplace, they'll be ridiculed, they'll be mocked, they'll be jeered at. We know even sadly how much this world hates the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes his name as a swear word. They take that name, Jesus Christ, and use his name as a swear word. But they'd never dare take their mother's name and use their mother's name or their father's name as a swear word. The Bible does tell us that men are born haters of God, despisers of God, despisers of the truth. And I pray that if that is your case here tonight, the Lord might convict you. The Apostle Paul was a hater of Jesus Christ. But the Lord stopped him on that road. He was on the road to Damascus, about to put many Christians into prison. He had papers in his hand. He persecuted, as he said, he is the chief of sinners, for he persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. But God stopped him in his tracks and made him a trophy of his grace. Now we arrive this evening here in our studies in Revelation chapter 6, the verse 9, and uh, I just want to say a few things by way of reminder and introduction this evening so that we carry on in the right frame to interpret the book of the Revelation. The book of the Revelation, as we've seen many times, is symbolic. Many of the things that we read in the book of the Revelation, there is what we could say symbolic language, allegorical picture language that really convey to us not only heavenly meanings and true spiritual meanings, but will show us not only the things that will take place in heaven and finally in glory, but the things that will take place in this world. We know that the number seven features very much in the book of the Revelation. We see that the lamb has seven eyes. It pictures, doesn't it, the omniscience of Jesus Christ, seven horns. Horns, we know from Scripture, represent power. We've seen seven churches. Yes, there were seven literal churches, but we know, again, those seven churches, really we could say they were all unique, all different, but they were all the same in this one sense, that they were all those churches that the Lord would keep and preserve, and that he knew the works of all those churches, and some of those churches had greater sin than others. They, none of them were perfect, but the Lord would preserve them. There are seven trumpets. We see now there are seven seals. Seven is a number that features very much in the book of the Revelation. There are also seven cycles, are there not, in the book of the Revelation. And these cycles, as we've seen, are what we call synchronous. They give us an understanding or a picture of everything that takes place from the time of John right up until the coming of Jesus Christ and into glory. And here in this second cycle, we have the view, don't we, of the seals being opened. And of course, we know from Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 4 that only one who is in heaven was worthy to unloose the seals of the book. And that is Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who has prevailed. How has he prevailed? Well, he has prevailed in this world. Remember what he said? He has done his Father's will. What was his Father's will? That he should lay down his life 
for his people. John chapter 17, we're told, aren't we? This is my father's will. And it was that I should lose nothing. And he came to lay down his life for his people in this world and to secure for them eternal life there upon the cross. On the cross, he died for their sins, suffered he the just for the unjust, that he would bring them to God. And that's why he cried in his last moments there on the cross, to Telestai, it is finished, was his cry. He breathed his last and he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And we know that day, as he said, he went with the malefactor, the thief, the murderer, who was guilty of insurrection. He said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He secured that man's eternal redemption, having lived for his people and then having died for them. Now where is he? Seated, says the Apostle Paul, at the right hand of God. To which of the angels, says Paul in Hebrews, to which of the angels did God the Father ever say, sit down at my right hand until I make thine enemies my footstool. So that's where Christ is. And we saw in the first cycle, at the end of the first cycle, Christ in heaven, glorified, and all the saints there around the throne of God. But Christ is also, because he is omnipresent, he is also, chapter 1 of Revelation, walking and amidst his lampstand. Remember what he said? Where two or three are gathered in my name, lo, am I there in the midst. And Christ is, as he said to Nicodemus, the Son of Man which is in heaven and is also in the earth. God is spirit. It is the spirit of Christ. Christ, though became flesh, he became the Christ that he might save us. He became the last Adam, didn't he? And he lived and died for his people. So we've been seeing, we've seen certainly the first cycle, Christ amidst his churches, and he says to each of them, you must overcome. And some of those churches, indeed, were suffering great persecution. Now, in the second cycle, we have the view of things that take place in this earth. And remember, as the, 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 this um, second cycle begins, we have the cherubim who announce the seal. And uh, what do they announce? Well, they announce the first horse that rides out. Verse 1, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, a noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now we know, we saw, as we looked at each of these horses, and each of them represents a seal, something that will take place in this world, in this present epoch. And the first is, the rider on the great horse, our attention is drawn to him, this is Christ. And we see, don't we, from Revelation 19 and the verse 11, that finally at the end, Christ doesn't just have one crown, but he has many crowns upon his head. And I saw heaven opened, Revelation 19, 11, and behold, a white horse. He that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but himself. And he was clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And that unmistakably is Christ. For we read, don't we, in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's God the Son. And we see him all victorious there in Revelation 19 and the verse 11. So the first rider we saw is Christ victorious in this world. And we must remember that throughout every successive generation, throughout every year, Christ is victorious because he's saving his people, whom he died for. His spirit goes forth. 
And his word goes forth and he conquers hearts and he draws them into his church and they hear the preaching of the word and they feel themselves to be lost without him. And, well, the Lord finds them. He sheds the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ into their hearts and he reveals himself to them. He draws them. And they are, as it were, born again. He gives the new birth. And when they die, they go to be with him in heaven. That's the ride on the white horse. So first of all, and we saw last week, that these other horses, the other three that will follow, are all following, as it were, they are subservient to the purposes of the first. He is the one that goes out and initiates it, doesn't he? He is the first, and he is also the last. And then the red horse which we very saw, saw very clearly from the verses there, represented bloodshed, martyrdom, and war. While the world continues on in its successive seasons and times, there will be bloodshed and war. There will be wars and rumors of war. Why? Because, first of all, man is sinful. And especially, there will be those that hate the truth and will persecute the church of Jesus Christ. And then, as we saw last week, there is the black horse, which there, and the rider upon it, is holding a set of scales. And we're told there, effectively, the imagery conveys the fact that there will be poverty and wealth throughout the ages. Man's systems, whatever political systems he might manufacture, You're always going to have these things in the world. It'll never be a utopia. Why? Because the heart is sinful. And because it is an imperfect world. And we can't solve the real problems of men's hearts. There will always be poverty and wealth. Let the oil, and we're told the wine, continue. Let there be, as we're told there in those verses, just be... Poverty and wealth, bread, a penny, and so on. And then there's the pale horse, the fourth horse, which we're told there very clearly represents death, whose name is death, we're told. There'll always be death in this world. So these seals convey the very fact that there will be the conqueror, the one on the white horse going forth, conquering and to conquer. And as dark as this world might seem, as wicked as it might become, Christ is all victorious, isn't he? And uh, he is the one that goes forth, and all these things are subservient to his great cause. There will be poverty, there will be wealth, there will be bloodshed, there will be martyrdom, and there will also be many forms. The pale horse represents death. We're told that there. Death will not be eradicated, no matter what the scientists say. I know we can make improvements upon medicine and things like that, but we'll never eradicate death. Scriptures tell us in Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto man once to die. But what about after that? People might try to freeze their bodies and try to live longer lives. Well, we're going to meet the Lord anyway. One day. And ultimately, Christ is victorious. He will prevail over all of these things, death, bloodshed, and so on. Now, this evening, as we come now to the fifth seal, this is where we arrive in these verses tonight. And uh, we see here the fifth seal. And uh, this begins in verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. This is the fifth seal. This is something that will take place in this world. There will be those who are in heaven that have lived in this world and have suffered. But our eyes now are taken, as it were, as we come to this fifth seal, and our eyes are focused not so much about on this earth, but about those that have gone to heaven. And uh, this is interesting, isn't it? Our gaze is now 
taken up to heaven. And when I had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now what we have are disembodied souls here. We know that when we die, we're told, aren't we, in Ecclesiastes 12 verse 7, the body goes to the dust and the spirit goes up to be with God who gave it. That's what happens when we die. But Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Second Corinthians 5, 6, we read, Therefore we are always confident knowing that whilst we are home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. It's if you're here, you're still alive in the body. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, willing rather to be absent from the body than to be present with the Lord. Verse 8. We don't believe in soul sleep as uh, many of the Catholics believe. That's uh, a heresy. Soul sleep. But here is a conscious awareness. Here these ones are with the Lord in heaven, and we hear them crying out. Now, and when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Well, it's a cry. What happens to the believer when they die? Well, if you just turn with me for a moment. We've read there, didn't we, from Second Corinthians 5 verse 6. But Acts chapter 7, here is Stephen, and uh, he is before the Jewish leaders, and they gnashing their teeth. He is preaching them the word of God, and they're about to put him to death. Stephen, the first martyr, we could say, in the New Testament. And it says in verse 54, when they had heard these things, they were cut to the heart. That's the Jews. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. In other words, what... What he said to them really pricked their conscience. They, they were pricked in the heart. And what was their response? Was it repentance? No. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up, that Stephen, steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears, literally plugged their ears, and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And that's, by the way, Saul or Paul of Tarsus, who would be the apostle Paul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, and this is Stephen calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And when he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he said this, he fell asleep. That is literally his body. Oh, he his spirit was received, as we read there. Just as the Lord said to the malefactor that day, today thou shalt be with me. In paradise. So Stephen was given a, a glimpse of the Savior, ready, standing at the right hand of the Father, ready to receive him into glory. Now, the Lord gave him grace, didn't he, at this great hour? We can't imagine the pain that Stephen was suffering as he was being pummeled to death and being bludgeoned by these great stones. So the souls of God's people go to be with heaven. Well, we have another uh, example. We have the transfiguration, don't we, of Moses and Elijah there on the Mount of Transfiguration. There in, if you turn to Matthew 17, verse 1 to the verse 6, we read there, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, 
There appeared unto them Moses and Elias, or Elijah, talking with him. So we see the saints there in glory with Christ. And uh, they converse with the Lord. It's a tremendous thing, isn't it? To know, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. So we completely reject the Catholic teaching of soul sleep. And here we have it. Here they are, the martyrs crying. But we have the phrase here. It says that the, the saints, they were seen under the altar of the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. Now, not everything is to be taken literally. This is symbolic. Altar signifies sacrifice, you know, from the Old Testament. And of course, these are ones that have given their lives for the Lord, served him below. And Paul tells us, doesn't he, in Romans chapter 12, he says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto the Lord. These are they that live for the Lord, served him below, and just did, as Paul said, offered themselves up. As they, they weren't put to death of their own accord, but they, they were put to death by others, just like Stephen. And they pictured here, as it were, as laying. There isn't an actual altar in heaven. We must eradicate that view from our minds. There's no need for a sacrifice, for Christ is risen. Christ is in heaven. There's no need for a sacrifice. He is the Lamb. But the picture is there. These that gave their lives for the great cause of the gospel. These who serve the Lord here below. It's not as if they somehow in a box underneath a platform or something like that. The idea there is, these are they that have served for the Lord. Paul says, offer up yourselves. It doesn't mean to say, uh, give yourself and try to save yourself by being a martyr. Of course, we're saved by Jesus Christ. But in serving him, it may even cost us our lives. As it did, you know that all of the apostles, apart from John, suffered martyrdom. And doesn't Paul say to young Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, we may not suffer martyrdom, but we'll suffer some form of persecution from this world. We'll be hated for Christ's sake in this world. That is sure. There's no question about that. Now, you can think of those who have perhaps already gone. We've read already in Revelation, haven't we, of Antipas, who suffered. It's believed that he was thrown into a boiling cauldron of oil. A terrible, excruciating death. They did terrible things. They'd throw Christians to the lions. Ignatius, we know, was thrown to the lions. We know Polycarp. We know what Mary Tudor did in this country uh, to, to many we know how many, you can, there are so many places up and down the land, there are at least well over 200 landmarks, places. I wouldn't say 200, there are many, there are at least 200 uh, saints that were and have been recorded uh, in our land that have been put to death for the sake of Christ. You can read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You can see many of the memorials up and down the country where Christians... Uh, were severely tortured. You can go to Colchester. Uh, you can visit the various places down in Salisbury. We've seen them. We've been to them. And this goes on today. It's interesting, you know, I was just reading the world persecution statistics today. I, I don't know if you're familiar with world, world Watch List, and then there's Open Doors and Barnabas and the Voice of the Martyrs. They all have statistics of how many Christians have been put to death even this last year. This year, the total of martyrs increased from 4,761. That was in 2021. This is on the World Watch list to 5,898 this year. And we're now in November. 
where do these things take place? Largely in countries like Nigeria. It's reckoned that the average death rate of the Christian, or should we say, there are, there, on average in Nigeria, 17 Christians are killed a day. 17 a day for the sake of Christ. And largely that is either by government or Muslims. It's terrible. Mali is another place, Sudan. This is going on all over the world. North Korea. And a lot of these things just don't make the headlines. You know, the, 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 a lot of the left-wing media won't publicize some of these things today. So, what do we read here? Verse 9, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They held a faithful testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, under the altar, is figurative for sacrifice, as I said in the Old Testament. In Exodus 24, the verse 6, we read, And Moses took a calf of the blood and put it in the basins, and the half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And so it was. The Christian will suffer for the Lord. And Paul says, our Christians... They give their lives to the Lord in service, and sometimes that means death. It's not a joke. It's a serious thing, isn't it? It's a sad thing, and, you know, um, this is happening on a regular basis all over the world today. And, uh, and it's increasing. You look at the statistics. Something else, they, they're crying something, verse 10, and they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? Holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Well, why are they crying this? Because God is a God of justice, and it's not right that, you know, Christians should suffer for Christ. Well, it's predicted that this will take place. The Lord Jesus said, men will not come to the light. They hate darkness. Well, Someone might say, well, aren't we to love our enemies? Is it wrong to cry out this? Lord, when are you going to have vengeance? Well, vengeance is not ours, we're told. It's the Lord's, isn't it? You know, somebody does something wrong to us, we sometimes want to do worse. That's our natural instinct. That's why the Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You just turn there in... Romans chapter 12, and you notice in the verse 18, the apostle Paul says, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Well, that's what we try to do as Christians. The scriptures say, blessed are the peacemakers. God's people are peaceable people. They don't pick a fight, they don't look for a fight. They preach the gospel of peace. But then the apostle says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. And the Bible does say, Love your enemy. Now, love is a duty, isn't it? As we've said many, many a time. The Lord says, When your enemy strikes you, do him good. Leave place for wrath. That's God's business. Because he alone is just and will execute justice on that final day. And he will. Now, it's true that any attack on the church, here's another reason why God will come. Any attack on the church is a, an attack on the Lord. We must remember that. Remember when Paul, or Saul, we should say, at that time, Saul of Tarsus, was persecuting the church. What did the Lord Jesus Christ say? He said there in Acts 9, he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Me? That Saul was persecuting the church. So the Lord takes it personally. And that's another reason why he will come, because the church is called his bride. The church is called his bride. And so this crying... It's not a sinful cry, but it's a just cry. And these men are, as Hebrews 12, 
22 says, are in the place where the spirits of the just men are made perfect. That's why their cry is not sinful. It's interesting, we have the cry from heaven of those who are perfected. And they can only think right thoughts, and it's right that God take vengeance upon the enemies of his church. As we sang there also in the Psalm 102. Now we read here, verse 11, and white robes were given unto every one of them. Now we know what this represents, because in the next chapter we see all the saints of God are clad, and it's the righteousness which is given to them by faith. It's the righteousness of Christ. We know, don't we, that parable of the wedding. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ gives it to us. And a man walks in and uh, he's found there without a wedding garment. And the Lord says, what are you doing here? And he's ushered out, isn't he? It's those that have trusted in the righteousness of Christ. So the bride, the church, every believer is only fit for heaven Because of Christ, who gives his spotless obedience to them as a free gift. My friends, that's the gospel, really, in a nutshell. We can't be there on our own merits. Only one is righteous, only one is good, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Where we're told here, and white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest Yet for a little while, a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. Now this doesn't mean that every Christian is going to suffer martyrdom. But as Paul says, all of God's people who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Remember what he said in Matthew 24. He said, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and betray one another. This is the end. And these things will come, he says. And many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. You know, as the great day of our Lord Jesus Christ comes, and it's coming, he will come, as the scriptures say, as a thief in the night. And suddenly, the world is not going to get any better. How long will it be? Well, this is what they cry. Well, I suppose we could say this. At the end, when Christ comes, it'll seem a very short period of time, actually, that we waited for him. Very short. And then the end will come, and we'll realize it wasn't so much suffering after all. It's always the way, isn't it? Well, you very naturally then have the sixth seal, notice. So that's the fifth seal, Sixth seal, verse 12 to the verse 17. And I beheld, and when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. These are cataclysmic events, by the way, friends, as we read here, that happen and culminate at the very coming of the Lord Jesus. And you'll notice, as we move to the next chapter, not tonight, but the next time, The seventh seal, I don't want to pun a phrase here, but all the saints are sealed up. That's the seventh seal. They're sealed up in heaven. And you see them all round the throne. And remember what I said, after every cycle, we see God's people in heaven. And that's what we'll see in the seventh seal. But we're just concentrating here tonight on the fifth and sixth seal. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, lo, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs 
when she is shaken of a mighty wind. So you can imagine the fig tree. It looks like it's going to blossom. But then all of a sudden, everything drops off. What is pictured here? The sun, the moon, the elements in the heavens. There will be a sudden change. Now, some men like Herman Huxner, very faithful commentators, believe, as we will see from Luke's Gospel, and if you just turn with me, Luke 21, where we told the signs of the coming of Christ at the end of the age. And uh, there are many passages to look at, but we just look at a couple here quickly. Luke 21, verse 10. Then he said unto them, Nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and great earthquakes shall be in divers places, and famines and pestilences, and fearful sights and great signs shall there be from heaven. Now these are clearly, not only there, but if you look at Matthew 24, and verse 29 through to verse 31, there are great signs in the earth, earthquakes, famines, pestilences. All of these things are what the scriptures call birth pangs. Christ is coming. And as I was going on to say that men like Herman Huxmer and others believe that it may not just be a, a day as such, but there will be times when there will be a great manifestation of earthquakes and uh, tsunamis, pestilences, warnings. And these will increase. And it's fair to say, isn't it, that studies have been done, by the way, since the 1960s, there have been never more earthquakes, famines, and pestilences recorded in all history up until recently. Now, let me emphasize, nobody knows the day, the time, the hour when Jesus Christ is coming. But we are told that surely these things will increase. And perhaps what is meant here is that there will be an increasing, there will be a greater frequency of these things happening in the earth just before Christ comes. And we may well be in those days. We don't know when Christ is coming. But the Lord has said, watch and pray. We don't know that hour. You've got to watch your own life. Are you ready to die, my friend? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Are you right with God? Do you know the Lord? Well, the statistics and natural disasters, as I said, since the 1960s record that these events, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, tornadoes, have never been so much on the rise. It's almost as if you turn on the news every day, you can hear of these things, isn't it? And perhaps the meaning here is it will become more apparent just before the Lord comes. And we read here, and finally, and the stars of heaven fell onto the earth. Now we know from what Peter says that the, 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 the heavens will melt with fervent heat. And there will be what the Lord Jesus calls the regeneration. It will be the same earth, but it will be burnt up as it were, be rejuvenated. And Peter says, we look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And all of a sudden that will come. Now you notice something. What happens during this time and on that great day when Christ comes? Verse 15. There are those, you notice here, who have despised the Lord and his people and they shall be in great terror. Verse 15. And there's every class mentioned here, represented here. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men, so the rich and every bondman, that's a slave, or poor, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains. So every class of person is represented here. It doesn't matter whether you're a king or you're a street sweeper, my friend. You will meet the Lord, and it will be a solemn day. He is your creator. You have lived in this world as if there is no God. 
that you will stand before him if we are without Christ and we will stand at his judgment. And there's no hope for those that have despised him and rejected his word and despised his people, never repented of their sins. And look at these people, they, they, they're calling for them, the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them. Because the wrath of the Lamb, that's Christ the Lamb, has come. He who is the Lamb is now the Lion who will judge this world. And who will judge sinners vehemently. And they call upon the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. They won't even be able to look at the Savior. The terror will strike them. The very heart So every class is represented here. And there's nowhere to hide. Absolutely nowhere. Now, all this is taking place. Every class is included. And except for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, as we read later, shall be acquitted. Only they shall be acquitted. All else shall be judged for their sins. Well, why are men behaving in such a way? Because it's the nature of every man, isn't it? Whether rich or poor, to hate God. That's the nature of man, isn't it? To hate God. That's in the nature of man. Until, unless God changes our nature, unless he, he changes our hearts, we will ever hate God and despise the truth. It's a solemn thing, isn't it? And none of these people repent. Now, they're not elect. That's why they never repented. Most of them never heard the gospel anyway. Most of them never heard the gospel anyway. And if they did, all the more. To whom much is given, much will be required. And this will be the last day. And then we have the seventh seal coming up in the next chapter. And we see all the saints sealed up in heaven. Now, friends, we take no pride as we say these things. This would be us apart from free and sovereign grace, wouldn't it? Remember what Paul said, who hath made you to differ? Only God makes a sinner to differ. And the lost will be cast from his presence. And into the everlasting lake of fire. Whoever's name was not written in the Lamb's book of life. Now how does this make us feel? It ought to humble us. Let me just close with this friends. What has made you and I to differ from anybody in this world? God changed your heart. Never look down upon others. Rather pity men. Humble your heart. Sovereign grace must humble you. Otherwise you've never really understood it. It's all of grace. God chose you before the foundation of the world. Not because you were better than anybody else. But because he chose to love you. So unworthy, worthy of his wrath, worthy of his everlasting damnation. You'd be lost. And therefore, doesn't that, you think of these saints that are suffering for Christ, and if you have to suffer, what is it? It's nothing. After all the love he has shown to you and to me. Think of him who suffered in our place. Condemned in my place he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Wrath would come upon me, friend, were it not for God's election, were it not for his predestination of me, were it not of him choosing me. It says there in John chapter 1, 
If you just turn there with me as we close. John chapter 1. Verse 12. I'll read from verse 10. He was in the world, that is Christ, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Isn't that amazing? The world who ignored him, he came to his own, his own knew him not. One day every eye is going to see him. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They had to, first of all, be made a new creature. They had to be quickened spiritually from the dead so that they would believe upon him. Verse 13 is antecedent to verse 12, which were born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not of your choice, not of the will of the flesh, but of the will of God. God made us willing. Christ made us willing in the day of his power. Christ quickened us. Christ brought us to himself. He brought us to hear his word. We came to believe upon him. And you know what? That makes you willing to suffer for him. When you realize truly that you were dead spiritually, God had to make you alive. You'd be willing to do anything for Jesus Christ by the grace of God. You realize he raised you up, made you a child of God. You were born again. What is it to die? To die means then to live with Christ. Whoever's born again shall never truly have a spiritual death. You're alive forevermore with Christ. Though you die, you shall live. That's what the Lord Jesus said. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Are we ready to suffer for Christ? If we are, thank God for saving us. The next time, God willing, we'll see all the saints sealed in the seventh seal, the close of the second cycle. Amen.